Welcome to the public morality. America has long touted, with good reason, its democratic republican form of government. But is the nation's democratic implementation equivalent to its proclamations? With its 233 years of peaceful transfer of power coming to an end on January 6, 2020, and the systematic attempts to make voting more difficult, Supreme Court rulings that expand First Amendment privileges to corporations in terms of money as speech, along with the number of those running for office that still hold 2020 was a rigged election. It's little wonder that the Economist Magazine's Democracy Index considers America to be a flawed democracy. So where do we go from here? To begin our conversation, I speak with Daniel Weiner. Weiner is Director of Elections and Government at the Brennan Center for Justice. Dan Weiner, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you so much for having me. Traditionally, the party that does not control the White House loses seats during the midterm elections. Now, suppose that trend occurs this year or Democrats manage to buck history. Would either one of those scenarios help American democracy? And if not, why? Well, that's a great question. And thank you. Um, you know, I come at this uh, from the Brennan Center's nonpartisan perspective. So what I look at really is um, what are going to be the circumstances that are going to be most conducive to passing an, a, a pro-voter uh, and pro-democracy agenda um, at all levels of government. And I think then what that boils down to really is that we want people, regardless of party, who are going to be uh, you know, determined to protect voting rights. Now, certainly uh, in this past Congress, I'm not going to, you know, beat around the bush. Uh, the Democrats were in control and the Democrats uh, did show dedication to uh, passing, uh, you know, a, a really strong set of federal safeguards uh, to protect the right to vote um, and to restore protections uh, against racial discrimination in voting. Uh, and, you know, if they were to retain their majorities in both houses of Congress, I hope that they would redouble their efforts. Um, but I also hope that if Republicans, uh, you know, capture one or both houses of Congress, that they too will work in good faith. And there are, you know, Republicans who have demonstrated a commitment uh, to these issues, such as Senator Murkowski, from Alaska uh, and and even uh, you know some others, I would hope that they too would work towards these issues. So you know again, um, what we care about is the substance. And uh, regardless of which party is in control, I hope that will continue to be a focus. You know there has been some bipartisan momentum in this Congress. I think they are poised, for instance, to pass a bipartisan overhaul of the Electoral Count Act. That's not nearly enough, but it offers some glimmer of hope that the parties can work together uh, and try to get something done for the American people on this. The, the strength of American democracy, in my view, is rooted in the ideals first articulated in the Declaration of Independence hmm. of Liberty and Equality. How are those ideals impacted when two of the last four presidents won the office without winning the popular? For the vote, severely gerrymandered districts, a large swath of candidates running in 2022 claiming that the 2020 election was rigged, and what seemed to be systematic efforts at the state legislatures to make voting more difficult. Your response, sir? Well, I think it clearly is a case where we have a crisis of representation right now. Now, look, let's be honest. Um, this country has never lived up to the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, ideals that I also, you know, hold very, very close. Um, but, uh, you know, we have had, particularly in the last, you know, 50 years, a sort of steady progression towards, you know, more perfectly living up to the ideals on which our country was founded. But developments, I think, over the last decade have been deeply, deeply troubling. 
in that regard. And I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, the other very uh, unrepresentative aspect of our system, actually far less representative even than the Electoral College, is the United States Senate, right? Uh, which which is wildly disproportionate. And there, there really isn't another body with this much power like it in any advanced democracy around the world. Um, nevertheless, uh, this is the democracy that we have. This is the structure of government that we have. And one would hope that within that uh, constraint, uh, the folks would still be working towards greater representation. And that does mean making it easier to vote, um, cracking down on gerrymandering um, and the other things that, you know, really do sort of take us backwards. So I am very troubled, and I do think uh, this is, you know, in some ways, every major Western democracy right now is facing uh, some sort of, of really crisis moment. Um, but, you know, they're all a little different. And in the United States, I think uh, we are kind of reckoning with the sort of collected legacy of our very imperfect sort of progress towards a more perfect union. And, and really facing a moment of testing right now where we're going to have to figure out, you know, do we believe in principles like one person, one vote? Do we believe that all votes should count? Um, and, and if we do, then we need to do what we can to fix our systems of representative democracy to more perfectly fit the ideals that we all espouse. I want to come back to something you said in your last answer. Um, if you would just give a moment, because you touched on the, you know, the Senate uh, being part of that, being part of that problem, which has since the inception has gone over, gone through sort of a metamorphosis, if you would. Why is the Senate in its current configuration uh, part of that small D democratic problem? Well, I think that the Senate, uh, you know, fundamentally, right, uh, there were reasons that the Senate was designed the way it was uh, in the founding era. Um, and, you know, throughout history, uh, the Senate uh, hasn't always uh, been uh, as much of a drag on the sort of small d democratic aspects of our system of government, but we happen to have um, a political configuration right now where more sparsely populated, more rural states tend to line up on one side of the partisan divide and larger, more urban states on the other. Now, it isn't exact, right? You know, both Florida and Texas, very large states, have, you know, two Republican senators. Uh, so, so, you know, those are, are relatively conservative states, but overall, it has created a structural disadvantage for one side. And I'm less interested in the momentary unfairness of that than I am in just kind of the peril for our democracy. That if too many people feel like they are disenfranchised, they will lose faith in our system of government. And that's why I need to think, we do need to think, you know, the Senate is, is unlikely to change, but we do need to think about you know, how do we uh, democratize the Senate? Um, and, and, you know, yes, there are certain sort of counter-majoritarian -major interests that the Senate serves, but at the same time, if the Senate is perceived as, you know, a consistent kind of, you know, anti-majoritarian minority interest constantly stymieing the will of the majority, it's unhealthy for our overall system of government. Um, and it's going to be on, you know, senators to figure out a path forward through that. Now, now, the retort to your, to your last question would be, well, if the Senate is uh, in its present form as anti-majoritarian, uh, the Constitution, one could argue, is anti-majoritarian, and the, 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 uh, and, and the Supreme Court. So are, aren't they really... Isn't the Senate really consistent in the American ethos as being anti-majoritarian? How would you respond to that, sir? Well, you know, uh, I think that that is a good point. And I think it points actually to a larger challenge that we have. So if you look around the world, um, no other advanced democracy still has the same constitution that it had at the end of the 18th century, when people had very different ideals about democracy and representation. Right. You know, the French, they're on their fifth constitution. 
right now. Other countries, you know, don't even have written constitutions. And I'm not going to say that there aren't um, benefits to, to the longevity of our constitution, but there are also very real costs. And it's, it's figuring out how to mitigate those costs that really is at the center of a lot of our work at the Brennan Center. And of course, what you also have now is you have a Supreme Court that is, um, you know, hellbent in some ways on, you know, stymieing any efforts to kind of, you know, adopt a mode of constitutional interpretation that takes into account modern values, right? That is the antithesis of originalism. Originalism seeks not to do that. So if you're going to have that, and then you're going to still have this constitution, right, that, that we all live by, you know, you're, you're going to face real problems because people today think much differently than they did in the 18th century. And I don't pretend that these, uh, you know, questions are easy to resolve, but I just don't think it's a sufficient answer to say, well, a bunch of guys in the 18th century thought it was really not good to have majority rule in most instances. Because if that's the case, then, you know, you're saying that we ought to live generally by 18th century values. And we don't today live by 18th century values. So we have to find a solution. And, and in my view, right, the solution, and, and it is similar to the project that you've adopted, is to adopt, you know, and to embrace the best of our founding ideals, but to also, you know, exist in a system that is still being developed to deal with the needs of today. And that includes a much, much deeper commitment to the principle of one person, one vote and to political equality. Now, now the sort of the elephant in the room that we haven't talked about when, when discussing American democracy, uh, is the role of money in politics? How, how does money, or does it have a corrosive effect on American uh, politics? And if so, please explain. Well, that's a wonderful question. And I think that the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that politics costs money. Um, mobilization of voters costs money. So although I've worked in this area for quite a while, I, I tend to shy away from saying, you know, get money out of politics or money is corrosive because, you know, the reality is like all good things, right, in our society tend to cost money. Um, at the same time, I think what we do need to look for is where does the money come from? And I do think it's corrosive um, if you have a very small group of elite unrepresentative donors who essentially act as gatekeepers in our political system, right? So if you want to run for the president, presidency or also for a Senate seat, you know, you have to raise a threshold amount of money. And, and by and large, in our privately financed system, that money is going to come from a very small group of people. Um, and it's contributing both, I think, to a sense that, you know, the, the government often doesn't seem to work for the interests of everyday voters. And I'm also thinking, I also think that it tends to contribute to what is turning into the somewhat corrosive nationalization of our politics. Because if you have, you know, 30 to 50 billionaire mega donors whose approval, you know, you really need to win a Senate primary, right? And they're all located as they largely are in a couple major, you know, metropolitan areas or Silicon Valley, then you're going to be spending less time thinking about uh, the interests and the priorities of voters in North Carolina, say, and more time thinking, you know, about what some particular Silicon Valley billionaire wants you to run on. Um, and that is a trend that we saw, uh, you know, Years ago in the presidential primaries, uh, you know, with with uh, mega donors who had outsized influence there. And I think now this cycle, it is kind of trickled down to U.S. Senate and governor races, right, where you also see Senate candidates who were largely, you know, at least got their start being backed by one major donor. Um, so that I do think is very corrosive. Um, and I think ultimately it goes to, you know, not only. Uh, who has a seat in the halls of power, but also whose voices are heard. Because, of course, you can have uh, somebody from an underrepresented group uh, get elected to office, but what ultimately matters as much as their identity is to whom they are they responsive. And if they are only responsive to a small class of major donors, um, I'm not sure you're actually going to make the kind of progress that you would hope for 
by, you know, having a more diverse uh, cadre of people in power. I'm speaking with uh, Dan Weiner of NYU's Brennan Center. Uh, Dan, um, to your last point, um, according to Open Secret, spending in this year's midterm election, they estimate will it will be roughly $9.3 billion. In 2020, that was it was 5.7 uh, with outside groups in that election contributing uh, 1.3 billion. So it's estimated that, to your point that outside groups will be contributing the larger sum. I don't wanna go down the road of the founders original intent, but that type of money and influence seems to be stretching American democracy beyond its intended limits. Your thoughts, sir? Well, I think that uh, that is one of the major factors that is really putting profound stress on our democracy right now. And, you know, you, you mentioned the founders. I do. It, it is personally somewhat frustrating to me only because to at least some degree, that trend is not the result of democratic choices that we have made, but as a result of the Supreme Court invalidating part of the regulatory structure that had tried to you know, bring some balance to our system of campaign finance. <clears throat> that decision, right, was the most ahistorical, uh, divorced from any understanding uh, of, you know, what the founders would have thought about our democracy, because it was based on this idea that, you know, there's a First Amendment right to spend unlimited money on politics and that, you know, you can't limit corporations, you can't limit other powerful interests in their campaign spending. That entire analysis was completely alien to anything that the founders would have understood the First Amendment to be doing. So it's this kind of, you know, have your cake and eat it too. You want to talk about, you know, original intent, you know, when it when it comes to gerrymandering and gerrymandering people out of power in communities out of power, but all of a sudden when it comes to money and politics, we don't talk about original intent at all. Um, so it is it is very, very troubling. It is not, again, I think the only thing that is impacting our democracy, but it's a big factor. And it's a factor we don't talk about as much because it's not always as viscerally apparent as voting rights or gerrymandering or some of these other problems. But the reality is money plays a big role in the fact that, you know, the, the electorate um, has certain priorities, right, that they say over and over again, particularly actually around kitchen table issues, jobs, you know, uh, uh, spending on education. And yet those priorities never seem to come to the top of the heap uh, in the halls of power. It's very, very hard even to get, you know, relatively modest, uh, uh, you know, uh, reforms through like those in the Inflation Reduction Act and money plays a role in that dynamic. I remember um, when I was growing up, um, California's Secretary of State was dominated by a woman by the name of March Fong Yu. Mm -hmm. It didn't matter if the state elected a Republican uh, uh, or a Democratic governor, she was going to win Secretary of State. Now, I mean, she's going to win as a statewide race. She was going to win every time. Few... Um, saw her as ever knocking on the doors as potentially a gubernatorial candidate. Uh, today, the races for Secretary of State across the country have amassed more than $50 million. What, what does that tell you about where we've gone democratically? It, uh, it, uh, it is really amazing. I, I'm so glad you brought up March Fung Yu, actually, because she was an extraordinary figure, right? She, she was a longtime Secretary of State of California, and very competently managed uh, the, the state's, you know, a, a machinery of elections. She was a Democrat, and then her son was actually ran for for office as a Republican. Um, but they shared many similar values on this front. Uh, you know, they, there wasn't that kind of stark divide that you see today. But certainly, uh, you know, a lot has changed from the days of, of March Fung Yu in terms of uh, Secretary of State races. These have become much more politically polarized, uh, you know, politicized offices. Um, and, and that is symptomatic of a broader trend where the basic machinery of our elections, right, have become 
a site of extreme partisan polarization. And, and one of the, the outcomes, right, is that you're seeing huge amounts of money that we're tracking going into these formerly very sleepy uh, races. And frankly, I think that's the wave of the future. I think that we need to figure out um, how to move forward, um, not only uh, in a system where, you know, in a reality where we have sharp disagreements on, on you know, many issues from abortion to tax policy, but, but where we actually also, to some degree, have fairly sharp disagreements <laughs> about the nature of democracy and what values uh, we need to privilege uh, in, in our democracy. Um, and compromise maybe is possible, um, but it, it's probably not going to be achieved um, by ignoring uh, the reality of these disagreements. That being said, I will say, you know, uh, common sense reforms to make it easier to vote, uh, to put some reasonable limits on money in politics and gerrymandering are overwhelmingly popular amongst ordinary Americans. Um, so I actually think that while there are really, hard, you know, fundamental disagreements, at the same time, there is still uh, plenty of room for uh, compromise and consensus around some of these issues, at least amongst you know, a working majority of this country. But we are going to have to reckon with the reality that these issues are much more politicized uh, than they were previously, and I think are going to continue to be that way going forward. Um, earlier you mentioned uh, that we just can't really rely on what the founders may have been thinking uh, as if we're willing to live in an 18th century paradigm. That said, um, when the Constitution was ratified, members of the House of Representatives represented roughly 50,000 Americans. Today, uh, that same seat represents three quarters of a million. How does that, just the organic growth in population, place additional pressure on American democracy? Well, it's a great question and, and, and one that folks have wrestled with. Um, I will tell you, I don't have a strong view on questions such as expanding the House of Representatives or whether, you know, that would be better to have a thousand member House of Representatives versus the one we have now. But I think it goes back to that we have a country that is fundamentally different than it was at the end of the 18th century. Now, I, I happen to believe in, you know, the core values of the Declaration of Independence and of the Constitution, uh, you know, to some degree, at least, in the sense that the Constitution was a revolutionary document at the time that it was written. And, and many of the values, you know, of of representative government, of, you know, checks on uh, unlimited power still uh, hold great, you know, promise and importance in our society today. But the specific mechanisms that the framers may have imagined uh, for, for government uh, at the end in an agrarian society, society at the end of the 18th century, you know, simply are no longer workable. Um, one of, you know, the big example, right, is uh, uh, that you referenced is, is members of Congress, right, can't uh, necessarily um, meet all of their constituents at the way they could in the 18th century, um, you know, or, or at least a large number of them. Frankly, also many more people um, are accorded the rights of full citizenship than were accorded the rights of full citizenship in the 18th century. And actually, one of the things then is how do we modernize Congress? You know, Congress uh, is woefully understaffed. Uh, it, it doesn't have access to, uh, you know, the kind of expertise uh, that, that can help it do, it do its job that, for instance, the executive branch does. So there are actually these interesting kind of technocratic problems of, you know, how can we just increase Congress's capacity to do its job. Um, and, and that means, you know, ironically, is treating these representatives, um, you know, like the important people they are who are entrusted with representing, you know, almost a million people at this point. Um, and that's actually a set of issues that I think I would hope that whoever controls Congress uh, in, the, in the next two years, um, that can be a priority. 
because there's one thing that I would hope that Republicans and Democrats could agree on, um, is that Congress needs more resources to do its job. And they actually did make some progress in terms of raising staff salaries um, and sort of similar, uh, you know, tweaks this, this Congress, but there's a lot more that they need to do. I, I, I don't uh, wish to sound partisan in my, in my next question, you know, some of the Supreme Court rulings really lay at the feet more so the Republican Party. But politics is cyclical. So my question to you, what will prohibit Democrats from employing an equal and opposite reaction, which ultimately will further burrow American democracy into the abyss? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Politics is cyclical. And yes, I would say that uh, some of the more troubling anti-democratic impulses that we are seeing right now are coming from parts, not all, but parts of the Republican Party. Um, But, you know, I would encourage Republicans and Democrats of goodwill to think about, you know, the, the basic principle of what goes around comes around. And, you know, I do worry that it will lead to further cycles of erosion. You know, when some of the more extreme Republican gerrymanders were passed in North Carolina, one of the defenses we heard was that, of course, the Democrats had gerrymandered the state for more than a century. And that, you know, when some of the other abuses, the Republican controlled legislature, you know, in my view, uh, committed, they, they pointed out that Democrats had, you know, attempted Uh, similar shenanigans previously. I don't know that, you know, in all cases, to what degree those statements were accurate, but I think it is undeniable that Republicans did feel marginalized in North Carolina somewhat unfairly for many years. And as a result, they upped the ante when they had the chance. And I think it's a reasonable worry that Democrats may feel the same. And and I think, you know, mutual de-escalation Um, has to be the name of the game. That doesn't mean that partisans cannot compete uh, in in, the the field of politics, but I would love to see people take a bit more of a long view. Um, And and again, I'm a realist. In the Brennan Center, I think we pride ourselves to a certain degree on on realism and that the the Democrats in this past Congress uh, were advancing, I, I thought, um, measures that would strengthen American democracy. But, you know, if if partisans of whatever stripe feel backed into a corner, um, at a certain point, they start to lose faith in democratic institutions. And I, I'm very worried about that. And I'm very worried about that on both sides. Um, so again, I, I think that, you know, it'll take both parties to some degree to pull back from this kind of spiral. Um, I, it would have been, I think, a real help if if we had passed some of these voting reforms. We think ultimately it would have become apparent very quickly that they were actually benefiting both Democratic and Republican voters. Um, but, you know, the, the push continues. And I think that, that that is the fundamental challenge we face. Uh, in your last answer, you reminded me of the words of uh, Justice Louis Brandeis when he said the most important uh, public office is that of private citizen. So... With that in mind, how any thoughts to how we might raise sort of the collective civic maturity that goes beyond if my side does it, it's fine. But if your side does it, you know, you're stretching the guardrails. Can, can, can we, how can we move beyond that? It's a great question and one that uh, bedevils a lot of us who work in this field. Um, I think that actually the media has an important role to play and and that, you know, that uh, role needs to be mindful of this country's diversity, both in terms of race and ethnicity and, and, and you know, but also culture and outlook. Um, you know, there is a lot of... Uh, polling uh, that suggests that the January 6th committee, for example, did have, uh, you know, a a measurable impact, at least on helping us sort of come to a collective understanding of what transpired in the effort to overturn the 2020 election, including from some people who may not particularly like Democrats and may not even be ready to vote for Democrats in, in this next election. But I think that, you know, if there were, there were aspects to their hearings that, that 
folks might have uh, wanted to see played out differently. But I think that that was a good exercise in trying to reach a broad swath of the country. Um, and I think that they did a good job. Um, you know, so that I think the media, I think public officials in how they present their case um, have a really important job to play. Um, I think, you know, we obviously, you know, could have a whole separate program on sort of big tech and, and what needs to be done um, to, to uh, encourage large online platforms to not make money off of the most polarizing content that they, you know, that, that's available on their platforms. So I think that there are uh, a lot of tools available. And I also think that, you know, I'm going to, you know, note optimistically uh, that the, the reasonableness of uh, the majority of the American people, as frustrating as it may seem, still is often in evidence, right? And, and I think that you have to remember uh, that there is uh, actually a governing majority uh, that, that is somewhat reality-based and that believes, you know, in democracy. It seems to be under great stress in part because of the kind of, as we talked about, counter-majoritarian, uh, you know, aspects of our political system, but it is still there to be mobilized. And, and it, it's going to take, you know, folks of goodwill um, across the ideological spectrum uh, to do that. Um, but I think ultimately, you know, this is partly about our political system, but it's also partly about our culture. And I think those who influence culture certainly have a very important role to play. Uh, in doing that. And, and it, you know, regardless of the outcome of this election, I think that's going to continue. Dan Wiener, Director of Elections and Government Democracy for the British Center of Justice. Sir, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated your insight. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Daniel Wiener. Stay tuned as I speak with Brookings Institution scholar William Galston here on the public route. Welcome back. Continuing our conversation of American democracy, I'm joined by William Galston, Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program Scholar. Dr. William Galston, welcome to the public morality. My pleasure. I want to begin this conversation by uh, sort of going back to a question you posed um, in a piece you co-wrote earlier this year with uh, Dr. Elaine Kmart. Is democracy failing in your view? Democracy has not yet failed in the United States or in most other countries where it's under pressure, uh, but it is in trouble. Uh, for a variety of reasons, some of which are economic, uh, some of which are cultural, and some of which have to do with basic political structures. So democracy at home and abroad is going through a very difficult period. Uh, and those of us who believe in it <laughs> as a good in itself are going to have to work extra hard in the coming years to make sure it doesn't come crashing down. Given the, the complicated nature of democracy, um, is, it, is part of our challenge, you mentioned the economic piece, you mentioned the cultural piece, is part of the sort of collective challenges, I may grab the cultural piece and I define democracy as a whole by that aspect, or I may grab the economic piece and define it by that aspect. Is that, is that part of our challenge here, sir? Well, it is certainly the case that People at different points along the agenda, uh, along the ideological continuum, have different agendas, and they're frequently not speaking to each other. I mean, if you look at the midterm elections, for example, one party is hitting one set of issues, the other party is hitting a very different set of issues, and we're really not having a dialogue or a debate about the best way forward. We're, have a, we're having a competition for the control of the agenda. Uh, and that makes it very, very difficult to think about coming together on any of the contested issues if we're really not talking about them with one another. 
Um, we had uh, Daniel Weir of the Brennan Center for Justice earlier in, in the broadcast. And we discussed the non-majoritarian makeup of the Senate, the Electoral College, the Constitution, the Supreme Court. Um, has, in your view, sir, America's democratic Republican form of government in 2022 sort of stretched us beyond those stated parameters? And does it place too much emphasis, in your view, on being non-majoritarian? Can we reconcile that? We use the word democracy very loosely. Uh, we have a constitutional republic of divided powers where the different branches or parts of government get their powers from very different sources. Ultimately, as James Madison tells us, all legitimate power in the United States comes directly or indirectly from the people. That doesn't mean that all of our officials are elected or chosen in the same way. Uh, many people have pointed, and I understand why, to the fact that small states have as much representation in the U.S. Senate as larger states do. Well, that was the famous Compromise of 1787 that made the Constitution possible. If it hadn't been for that arrangement, there would have been no agreement on a constitutional Republican order at all. Uh, in recent years, Democrats have been complaining uh, that this imbalance of representation in the Senate gives the other side an unfair advantage. But it wasn't that long ago when Democrats, rather than Republicans, controlled the lion's share of the smaller states. And I can't rule out the possibility that at some point in the future that will happen again, at which point the shoe will be on the other foot. Uh, it's also the case that certain features of our constitutional system would be very, very difficult to change without an actual constitutional revolution. And the, the system of representation that we have in the Senate would be probably the most difficult of all of the provisions of the constitution to change. So I think we're gonna to have to pursue democratic objectives with the institutions that we have and not necessarily the institutions that we might institute if we were starting from scratch with a blank slate. So I would not counsel uh, my colleagues on either side of the political divide to spend an enormous amount of time and energy on issues of fundamental constitutional revision. Uh, I think we need to focus on the actual substance of the problems that we have and to try to make progress on them within either the current structure or the current structure as it might be modified with the consent of both political parties as they now stand. Um, so, so staying on that thread, um, Norman Ornstein of the American Enterprise Institute projects that by 2040, 70% of the people will live in 15 states. That type of organic transformation uh, was not in the, obviously in the thinking uh, of the uh, creators of the constitution in 1787. Can we adapt to that sort of drastic change if uh, Dr. Ornstein is correct in his uh, supposition? I'm reasonably sure that he is correct about the numbers. Uh, he really makes big mistakes. I've known him for a very long time. Uh, and the, que the question is uh, what we can do about that. Uh, if you look at the current constitution, and here I'm doing this from memory, uh, but I will check on it uh, as soon as I can. Uh, the issue of representation in the Senate, I believe will require the consent of the states in order to alter. I think that's the way the constitutional provision is uh, written. Let me pause for a minute. Here it is. In Article 5, which deals with amendments to the Constitution, it is stated that, and I quote, no state without its consent, 
shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. I do not think that it would be easy to get around that provision of the Constitution. That would leave a scenario where if, if uh, again, uh, assuming Dr. Ornstein is correct, that 30% of the people will, will elect 70% of the senators. That would certainly be the logical outcome. My reading of American history is that we have changed uh, our basic constitutional arrangements when there was an overwhelming consensus that we needed to do so. Uh, you can perhaps uh, make an exception for the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, uh, which reflected uh, the conduct and the outcome of the Civil War, and where obviously <laughs> uh, the, the consent of the defeated parties in that war was not the point. Whether there will be the kind of consensus that we need in order to alter the fundamental constitutional provision of, of equal representation for the states remains to be seen. I can't rule out the possibility uh, that as, the, as it, the situation, the imbalance becomes more severe, uh, that pressure would grow for a change uh, and that some way would be devised to get around what seems to be the very stark language of the Constitution prohibiting a change in the equal re representation of the states without the states uh, who are losing representation or losing the power, uh, the voting power of their rep representation, uh, agreeing to it. Uh, I am not a constitutional lawyer, and I can't tell you how that nut could be cracked if it can be, uh, but it is a significant stumbling block. Uh, and, but the, the, the problems of our constitutional democracy are too serious and too imminent to wait 10 or 20 years until consensus builds. And that's how long it would take for a change as fundamental as moving from equal to unequal representation of the states in the Senate. The, the other piece, another, another sort of pressure point, uh, it seems to me, on our democratic republican form of government um, would be the plethora of gerrymandered districts in the House of Representatives. And, and while it ensures more safe seats uh, that both parties, both political parties seem to enjoy, I'd, I'd like to have you talk about the unintended consequences in that the people in those seats, regardless of power, regardless of party, excuse me, tend to be more strident and what types of pressures that may put on a, on a democratic republican form of government such as America's? Well, it's certainly not helping, but here I'm going to have to pull rank <laughs> and put my political scientists hat on. Safe seats, which, which encourage extremists uh, to make their case in the primaries and do widen the gap between the two political parties are not primarily the result of gerrymandering. They are more the result of what one, one author, Bill Bishop, called the big sort, where over the past three or four decades, people who are politically like-minded have been more and more likely to cluster uh, geographically close to other people who agree with them. And so we have had a political sorting out of the country along geographical lines. At this point, and I've done some of this analysis myself, you would have to aggressively gerrymander four con uh, competitive con congressional districts. If you employed normal techniques of districting, you would end up with something pretty close to the number of safe seats we now have. And let me give you an example. If you have, if you have urban areas that are predominantly democratic and then surrounded by small towns and rural areas that are primarily Republican, in order to have congressional districts, what you'd have to do is take pie slices where 
you would divide up the urban population at the core of this geographical area uh, so that you know, one sixth of it, let's say, goes to each of six congressional districts and, and similarly for the small towns and the rural areas that are less densely, densely populated. So the slices would be bigger on the outside than, than they are on the inside. And that would, among other things, reduce the number of majority minority districts. Uh, the creation of which has also been a major objective of law and public policy for many decades now. So this is not a simple problem. Uh, and uh, uh, I could make an argument that the creation of more contested seats is even more important than the other objectives of redistricting that have been pursued really since the Voting Rights Act. Uh, but uh, uh, but it would be a really tough argument at this point. And I think it is just an analytical mistake to focus on gerrymandering as the, as, as the major sin of our districting system. It's much more complicated than that. Um, Madison, James Madison famously was concerned, at least in the federal paper, federal papers, he was concerned about factions. Um, we tend Oftentimes, we tend to think of facts as political parties, but I, I, I would argue that, that that notion of factions has gone into a plethora of areas, not including political parties, but also special interests. Is this something that, I mean, have, have we reached a point in our democracy where this is unattainable, I mean, un, unsustainable, or, or, or is there a way to, to um, mitigate the influence of factions. <laughs> well, uh, you're referring, of course, to the famous Federalist Paper Number Ten. You know, one of James Madison's most celebrated writings. Uh, and the fundamental distinction at work in Federalist Number Ten, if I can be professorial for a minute, is the distinction between a multiplicity of factions on the one hand and organized political parties on the other. Madison wanted the former. He emphatically did not want the latter. James Madison was an opponent of the kind of party system that we have now and which arose within the first decade of the operation of the Constitution. He thought that organized political parties representing large chunks of the population in sort of fixed coalitions would be really dangerous for the country. He thought by contrast that if there were lots of different interests, you know, what he called factions, we would now call interest groups. And if those interest groups were combining and recombining depending on the issues, depending on the times, that would actually pr provide a security uh, for liberty. It would, it would reduce the chances that any one grouping could be a permanent majority and use that permanent majority to oppress the minority. So what you're seeing as a problem, Byron, James Madison saw as the solution. Uh, and what we now take for granted, namely the party system, is what he saw as the problem. And uh, I, am, I am old enough to remember a time when parties were not as big of a problem as they are now because they very substantially overlapped ideologically. Uh, when I was growing up, there were conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. And you know, liberal Democrats often got together with liberal Republicans uh, to push back against an alliance of conservative Democrats and conservative Republicans. But on other issues, uh, the coalitions within the parties were stronger than the potential coalitions between the parties. Those days are gone. Uh, both political parties now are ideologically much more 
homogeneous than they ever have been before. And unfortunately, they represent increasingly different populations, types of people. Uh, and, uh, and so this, this pitched war, it's sort of like World War I with a single front and the two political parties expending a lot of effort to gain relatively small amounts of territory, turns out to be a very poor formula for governing uh, our country in current circumstances, maybe in any circumstances. So that, in my judgment, is the heart of the, pop, of the problem. The, the, the sorting out of our political parties and the calcification or rigidity of the differences between those parties. We, we, we seem to uh, uh, view other Americans in this moment um, as the existential threat in ways not seen, I guess, since the run up to the Civil War. Um, so in my, from my perspective, sir, if my party does it, even if it goes beyond the Democratic guardrails, that's okay. It's necessary. If you do it, it, it is a constitutional violation. Can we survive that type of ethos long-term in your view? No. Uh, and uh, my hope is that we will be scared into some sort of return to the basics. Uh, and let me just define one of the basics that I think is particularly important, namely the rule of law. Uh, you know, and a breach of law is equally wrong no matter, no matter which party commits it and for what purpose. And certainly the resort to violence is wrong, no matter who resorts to it and for whatever purpose. Uh, and if we can't come to an agreement on that, then each party will charge the other with hypocrisy. Dr. William Galston. Uh, of the Brookings Institution's Governance Studies Program. Thank you, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Honored it's to have you my, here. It's been my pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Paul McRally on WSNC can now listen on its app. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, for all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.